We are in the presence of God right now, and I don't want to to take away from that by sharing announcement after announcement. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into this word. I'll just briefly say we were able to do again this past week what we did two weeks ago and passed out close to 1,100 boxes of food to this community and to surrounding communities. It was amazing. It was such a blessing, and we're going to be doing it again this week. We gave, uh, we gave just at this location right at 650 gallons of milk. That's a lot of milk. I'm not sure I've ever drank that in my lifetime, but it's a lot of milk. But I thank God for that blessing for us to be able to do that. I want to share something today, a message that's on my heart. And we're going to pray again in just a moment because I want you to direct your prayer at me so that God give me this renewed energy to preach this message. I see a lot of similarities in this story that I'm about to share with what our nation and our culture look like today. And it's actually, to be honest, one of the saddest scriptures in the entire Bible. And we're going to look at this not to make us grieve and to make us sad, but to remind us we don't have to be like this. That we can be renewed in the power of Jesus Christ. That, that he can give us joy, that, that we don't have to be like this. I, this. This message today is titled, The Road to Ichabod. And we're going to be sharing this story out of 1 Samuel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can go ahead and start to turn there as we pray. But can we do something a little bit different today? Can you stretch your hand towards me and pray for me? That God anoint this message. That people not see me, but they see him. That it's not about my words, but it's about the power of Jesus Christ speaking through us today. Lord, Father God, we pray that you'd be with us right now. God, this message is so important for our, for our day right now. And God, I don't want it to fall on any deaf ears. But God, I want it to, to resonate in our spirit so that it can transform us to the image of Christ. God, I don't want people to see me. I want them to see you. So God, I pray that you do with me this morning what you did with Moses when you told him I'll be your mouth as you speak. God, I'm your servant today. I am not here to be served, but I'm here to serve the Most High God with, with preaching this word. So God, use my words. Let them be clear and precise. God, I pray you'd open up our minds You'd open up our ears and our eyes to see, to know, to hear what it is you want us to hear and see and know this morning. God, we thank you. We praise you. And it's in your name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. Are you ready for the word of God today? 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're starting in verse 4. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. The Israelites were at war. They were at battle. It says so. It says the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and they were in battle. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was beaten by them. Israel, God's, God's people were destroyed. They, they killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders said, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before them? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. 
So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who's enthroned between them and the cherubim and Eli's two sons who were there. They're, they are the theme of this sermon today. His two sons. It says in verse 5 that when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, I need you to hear this because this is the power of His glory. This is the power of our praise. Verse 5, when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that what? The ground shook. Do you understand and realize that the very glory of the Lord gives us the power through our words that when we speak it and when we shout it, the very glory can tremble the ground at which we walk. The power of God is so strong that He can literally move mountains. So what happened? Hearing the uproar, they said, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, what happened? The Philistines were what? They were afraid because they heard the shout. They felt the ground shake. They knew that the power of God was there. They said, a God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. They were scared. They were worried. Goes to verse 8. They said, we're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They're the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, he said. Be men or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they had this war cry, right? They got together and they decided to go to battle. And so they fought. And what happens? The Israelites were beaten. They were defeated. And what happened? And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. And Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. It goes to verse number 11 that says the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, they died as well. The same day we have a Benjamite who ran from the battle line and who was sent to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on a chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? Verse number 17, the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled, the army has suffered losses, and your two sons are now dead. And beyond that, okay, the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and was heavy. He led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law was pregnant and near the time that she was about to deliver, when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that everybody was dead, she went into labor, gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pain. And as she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. It was supposed to be a joyous, miraculous, happy time. She had just given birth to a child, a son. <laughs> as she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. 
But she dare not respond or pay any attention. So what she do? She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths, she said the glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. The ark of God has been captured. Here we find one of the saddest stories in all of God's word. It's perhaps a classic low point among the people of God. The priesthood's corrupt. Home life is getting worse. They're worshiping idols. Worship is lightly regarded. And the nation is at war. And the battlefield is their own backyard. Sound familiar? I see it happening today. The land is decorated with fresh graves because of all these men who died. The priests are slain. And when the news reaches the camp, the spiritual leader of Israel drops dead. It's a bad day. The glory of God is gone. But how did it happen? How did it happen that the children of Abraham, these people called that, were called out of Egypt, whom God rolled back the Red Sea and delivered and kept them into the wilderness, how did it happen that the people who marched around Jericho and saw the wall come down, how did it happen that they lost the glory of God? I believe Scripture shows us three ways in which they lost the glory. And I don't share these with you this morning to get us all sad and depressed and, oh, life is over. But I share them because it doesn't have to be the same today. It doesn't have to be the same for you and I. And so I want to share these truths with you so that we can get the house back in order. Because we're going to share it in just a moment. But whatever happens in the house happens to a nation. That's why we have to get the house in order. What's the first thing that, that, Eli, that Eli's sons did? The first thing they did was they did not have a relationship with God. It was an inadequate relationship with God. If you go with me back to chapter 2, I'll even show you where it says Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. They had no regard. The sons of Eli were sons of, um, of, um, of Belial, which that word means worthlessness. They were worthless. They were good for nothing. Why were these leaders good for nothing? Because scripture says they knew not the Lord. Their inadequate relationship with God caused them to be valueless in terms of the spiritual leadership they could provide for God's people. You see, the two of those go together. They go hand in hand. Because my value to the world and to my home and to the church is directly proportionate to my relationship with God. It is, direct, it is proportionate to my relationship with God. And the more stale that my relationship with God is, the less powerful this ministry is and the most critical I am to live with. If I am stale spiritually, I am less than a dad than I should be. The two are inseparable. You see, your relationship with God determines the value that you are in the world, your society, your home, and the body of Christ. The inadequate relationship with God is the first step that you and I can take to lose the glory of, of God. They lost the glory. They lost the glory because they knew not the Lord. They knew about God. They knew that there was 
some God that they, they even said so. You, you have the enemy even knew that. They said, well, this is the same God that brought about all the plagues. So they knew who he was, but they didn't know God himself. You see, you can be baptized in every creek until the tadpoles know you by name. You can memorize every verse, every scripture. You can memorize the Ten Commandments. And it's not going to get you anywhere. You, 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 you can go to school and get every piece of paper that you can and have letters next to your name. But it doesn't mean anything unless you know God intimately. You have to know Him in an intimate way. You see... Because knowledge about God can never replace a personal relationship with Him. It doesn't matter how much you know. Do you know Him? Therefore, these two sons had no spiritual value. And the word know within this passage, it's very interesting in chapter 2 verse 12. It's the same word that's used when the Bible says that Adam knew Eve. It's a word of intimacy. It's the same meeting in Paul's prayer that we talked about just a couple weeks ago when Paul said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may what? Know Him better. So that you may know Him. Knowing Him, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him in an intimate way. Knowing God is the most intimate kind of way and it's necessary that you have that in order to be all that God wants you to be. Remember when Jesus said, He said, I no longer call you my disciples, but I call you what? My friends. Because they had moved from a head knowledge of who He was into a heart knowledge of who He was. They moved away from just reading the Bible stories. They moved away from just quoting scripture. They moved away from all of that and said, you're my best friend. I want to know everything about you. And when you care about somebody that much, you spend the appropriate time with them to make sure that the relationship works both ways, that each partner knows how much you love them. We must have that relationship with God. See, these two sons had a... A, a knowledge, had a head knowledge, but they didn't have that relationship. Number one, that these sons did, they didn't know God. Number two, they had an improper attitude towards worship. They had an improper attitude towards worship. Watch this. In chapter two, it goes on to say, now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would what? Take for himself. It was to serve him. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And watch this. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer with what? No, just hand it over now, because if you don't, I'm going to take it anyway. I'll take it by force. 
That was the attitude that these men had. It was to serve themselves. Their relationship to worship and to sacrifice was self-serving. It was taking it for their own gain, not the gain of anybody else. They exploited worship for what they personally could get out of it, and it's awful to read that anybody would do such a thing. That anybody would exploit something as sacred as worship to our living God. Now you and I would say that we'd never do that. And I agree. I'm right there with you. I'd say, well, there's no way on God's heaven and earth that I would do anything like that. But you see, it happens to us without us really knowing it. We... We sometimes reach that point where we're in it only for the blessing. We're in it for what we can get out of it. We worship so that my prayers get answered. When in reality, God wants us to worship. Why? Because it's what He deserves. It's what, it's what we were created to do. And God blesses us and He answers prayers. Why? Because He loves you and I that much. But sometimes, without even realizing it, we go to the Bible and we pick out the passage that best suits us. And before you know it, we have a me-centered gospel. Jesus Christ is no longer the Lord to be bowed to whom we prostrate ourselves, but He becomes the servant so that when we ring our bell and say our memorized phrase, that He comes running to meet our every need. That's not the way it works. The way that we worship God is that we prostrate ourselves to Him with arms open wide, sacrificing everything that we can to a holy God and say it's not about what I can get from you. This is only about what I can give to you. And you deserve my worship, God. You deserve my praise. So no matter my circumstance, no matter what I'm going through, I'm not here just for a blessing. I'm here simply to serve you. And then the beauty, Joe, of that type of relationship. Because what's the Bible say? God knows the intent of a man's heart. When we do things the right way, he blesses us anyway. Why? Because he loves us. There's an old song that simply says, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. What's it say? He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Because he loves us that much. You see, we have what we have today, not because of what I took from him, but what he so generously gave me. Because let me tell you something, this pulpit, this microphone, the shoes that I wear, I don't deserve a penny of it. I don't. None of us deserve it. But God so graciously gives us more than what we deserve. There was a, um, a vision in Ezekiel. And I want to share this with you because the vision is in regards to rebuilding the temple. And I want you to hear what God had to tell them about what they were doing. It says, Son of man, look carefully. 
Listen closely and give attention to everything I tell you concerning the regulations and instructions regarding the temple of the Lord. Give attention to the entrance to the temple and all the exits of the sanctuary. This next verse goes to say, Say to rebellious Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Enough of your detestable practices. Enough. Enough of the detestable practices. What's it saying? He says, in addition to all the other detestable practices, you have brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, into my sanctuary, desecrating my temple. What is this desecration that he talks about? What is the pollution that he talks about? It's an inadequate appreciation and understanding of what worship is. They have not understood God's demands for righteousness. And we have to get back to being a nation that has righteousness in our blood. That has holiness in our blood. There is something about living right. Being in right standing with Him. We must live that way. They exploited the sanctuary for their own advantage. Watch this. It goes into verse 8. And now God's being plain and clear. And listen to His words. He says, instead of carrying out your duty in regard to my holy things, you put others in charge of my sanctuary. This is what the sovereign Lord says. No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh is to what? Enter my sanctuary. We must continually remember and keep in mind and remind ourselves that this is the house of God. This is God's house. The issue is not coming here to get a blessing, but rather we come here to bless His name. And in that process, the glory of God falls all over us and we end up being blessed anyhow and we get our cups full and we leave here changed by the power and the presence of God. Watch what He said. He said they can minister in my house. They can. They can minister in my house. But verse 13, but they are not to come near me. Listen to this. They can worship in my house, but they are not to come near to serve me as priests or come near any of my holy things or my most holy offerings. They must bear the shame of their detestable practices. They shall not come near me. It's a mind-boggling thing that God allows people in churches from whom he has lifted his glory to continue to minister to people. They continue to minister, do good deeds, feed the poor, clothe the naked, but the glory is gone from their house because why? They don't have a relationship with God and they have an improper attitude towards what worship should be. You see these men from our original passage, Eli's son. I want you to let's go back to that passage. It said the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They were not treating God the right way, His offering the right way. They didn't know God. They didn't worship Him. See, there's a big difference in enjoying worship and enduring worship. Is worship something you want to do or something you just should do? Is your singing from your heart or is it from your head? Is your worship passionate or is it passive compliance? 
Do we come to God because we should? Do we come to God because we must? Or do we simply come because we desire to? Eli's sons didn't know God. Therefore, their worship was wrong. And number three, there was an absence of spiritual um, a discipline in their life. And let me tell you something. Eli knew what his sons were up to. Eli knew what they were doing. Watch what it says. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He knew they were committing, a, they knew they were committing sin. These priests were living immoral lives and the time, at the, and, and the same time that they were ministering and making sacrifices Sacrifices and quoting the Ten Commandments and doing all these things, they were living in sin. They were living a double standard. So Eli told them that they had sinned against the Lord. And the word tells us that they did not listen. Watch. If one person sins against another, God may meditate. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede? Watch. His sons, however, did not listen. They didn't listen. So because they didn't listen, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now notice what God says to Eli. Because this is just as important. He says, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? Whew. Why do you honor your sons more than me? And as a matter of fact, God goes even more to chapter 3 where it says, For I told him that I would judge them forever because of the sin that he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Parents, I'm going to be very open and clear with you right now. You will be held accountable for the sins of your children if you knowingly know what's happening and do nothing about it. You see, there's a reason why the shepherd has both a rod and a staff. One is to comfort, one is to correct. And they both must be used. There was no discipline that Eli was willing to execute in terms of a standard for his children. Eli was too easy on sin. Why? Because had he have dealt with it because of the position that he held, because of the position that his children held, he decided to keep it quiet so that it didn't stir up a lot of noise within the community. Well, what would people think if they knew that my children were doing this? What if, what if this and what if that? It doesn't matter. We have to live righteous lives. It isn't enough to be religious at heart if we are harmless in our conduct. We have to take a stand against what we know is wrong and unrighteousness, even if it makes a lot of noise in the community. Let me tell you something. With Eli's sons, worship wasn't changing the way they behaved. That is number one reason why we know their worship was not real worship. Because true worship changes who you are. True worship changes your view, your, your, your being. It, it changes how you think. 
As a matter of fact, the lifting up of my hands is not worship. We know this. The dancing in the spirit, guess what? It's not worship. They're expressions of my worship. What is worship, you ask? It comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, worth-ship. It is an orientation of what I will value. The issue of what does my life center around? What does my life re-evolve around? What is most important in my life? What is the driving force behind my life? What do I wake up for? What do I live for? What do I breathe for? Whatever those answers are, that is what we worship. That's the God in your life. And for many of us, it could be personal goals. It could be your job. It could be money. It could be your business, maybe a hobby. And in Eli's case, it was his children. What you value the most is what you worship. But let me tell you something, church. If you have breath in your lungs then there's still time to praise God. If there is breath in your lungs and energy to take a step, you still have purpose, and that purpose is to worship Him, and that worship doesn't just, simp 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 uh, doesn't just simply make you look good, but it will transform you. You see, what I'm giving you right now is information. I'm giving you information to help us live by, Right? Information will affect your head, but transformation will affect your heart. Information says, do you understand what I'm saying to you? But transformation says, do you hear what God is saying to you? Information is about your intellect, but transformation goes beyond words. It's where the spirit communicates with your spirit. Information is logical. Transformation is spiritual. Information is knowledge about Christ. But transformation is union with Christ. We can't just know God. We have to be transformed. You see, spiritual transformation is not an option for the spiritual believer. Neither is it just an experience. It's a process. And if you're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you are in the process of losing the glory of God from your life. The Bible says that He goes from glory to glory, which means it's a continual process. We will never reach the apex of our Christian life. We will never reach that moment where we say, I made it. I'm there. I'm at the top of my game. Nobody can be above me. I'm on the mountaintop looking down upon everybody. That is a religious spirit. And there's nothing God about that. You will never reach that place where you have made it. It is a continual process of God renewing your mind. You see why? Because God doesn't want us in control. He wants us to be submissive to His control. There was a man by the name of Maurer that said, It's easier to act yourself in a new way of how you feel than it is to feel your way into a new way of acting. Listen, that may sound real good, but it's completely opposite to what the Bible says. The Bible declares what you can be by the power of the, whole, of the, whole, of, of the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of how you feel, it's a matter of your faith. Pente the, when you have a, um, a Pentecostal 
this this heritage, being a Christian, doesn't mean simply behaving differently. It doesn't mean just keeping the rules. It doesn't mean that we produce better people. That's not what our heritage is all about. Listen, when Pentecost began and this denomination was birthed, um, gamblers didn't stop gambling and smokers did not stop smoking just because somebody told them to. No, they did it because they wanted to. Because the power of God transformed them. The power of God changed them. There is something different about them. They might not have been able to explain it. But there is something about them that just changed. You see the truth about being transformed is the truth transformed them because something changed inside of them. Spiritual transformation is a process whereby the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the child of God so that he begins to become like the Son of God. Let me say it like this. When the child of God looks into the Word of God and finds the Son of God, he will be changed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. Obedience and submission does nothing else but set the stage for transformation. So what happened? Eli's sons, one, they didn't know God. Two, they did not, they had an improper attitude towards worship. They did not live a righteous, moral life. So God sent judgment. God cut off the house of Eli. Eli honored his sons above God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, he said, The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And then if you go down to verse number 33... Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. The, the um, a Babylonian Talmud talks about a household within a Jerusalem whose members died regularly at the eighteen at eighteen years of age, and many thought that was the house of Eli. A judgment came on their home. Because they had led Israel down the path of losing the glory of God. We must not fall prey to that. Because let me tell you something. And this is our culture. This is what I'm talking about. What happens with a house happens to an entire nation. Eli decided it best to keep the sin quiet. The sons decided to continue to live in sin. So what happened? They were cut off. An entire nation was destroyed because of their actions. Okay, what do we see around us on every street corner downtown? What do we see across the United States? We see riots. We see hatred. We see all these things. And it's why? Because we've lost the glory from the house. And if we want to make a difference, if we want to be a part of change and bring about change in our culture, let me tell you something, I'm not a political preacher. I've never preached a, a message like that. 
But there is no government or man in office that will bring the glory back to the house of God. It's going to take the church uniting together and getting back in their scripture and falling on their knees in worship and prayer to say, I'm going to take it upon myself to bring the glory back to this house. And what happens to a house, Paula, will affect an entire nation. If we want the nation to come back to God, we've got to get the house back in order. We have to live righteous. Righteous. But there was another problem here too. And we're going to close in just a moment. Israel got into battle. And they were losing the battle. And they said they needed to get the ark. Because the ark and the presence of God could not be separated. In the, at least their mind. The glory of God rested over the ark. They felt that if they could get the ark inside the battle, then they would have the Lord and they would win. They used it for their own need, for their own personal gain. And we just read in our original passage that 30,000 of their soldiers died and two priestly sons were slain. The runner brought the bad news to the camp with torn clothes and, and all this dirt on his head. And Eli falls off the bench breaks his neck and dies and the wife goes into labor and has a son and named him Ichabod because the glory of God was gone. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When we begin to think that God is inseparable from his symbols and when we confuse them, with, with the substance of God, we make a tragic mistake. God cannot be drawn into our battles by any kind of symbol or thing that we have. There is no earthly... Um, this right here doesn't bring the glory of God. This microphone doesn't bring the glory of God. This guitar, this piano, this everything on this stage doesn't bring the glory of God. They're just instruments used to usher Him in. We cannot use symbols to bring in the glory of God. Yet it is God himself that we must fall and bow to. It is his, it's his being, it's who he is. You see, um, in um, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, it says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What Judah was saying, Jeremiah, you're wrong. Judgment won't come on us because the temple is here. And as long as the temple of God is here, God will not judge us. That was their security. They were wrong. They put their trust in a symbol and not in the substance. They put their trust in a thing. And not in God himself. And then it goes on to say, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. They should have learned that as God wrote Ichabod over Shiloh, he would do it over Jerusalem too. But they had not learned their lesson. We'd like to think this would never happen to us. But to say that is to deceive our own self. In the days of Amos, they said that the sacrifices were the symbols. But Amos said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God said to take away the noise of your song and your sacrifices stink. 
They called him a false prophet and wanted to run him out of town. The sons of Eli were judged because of unrighteous deeds that they committed, but Eli was judged because of a righteous deed that he omitted. Sometimes it's just not a matter of doing wrong. Sometimes it's a matter of knowing to do right and not doing it. Eli knew what he was supposed to do. And he decided to not say anything. You see, Jesus will say, and I'm about to close. Seth, if you come, or Joe, or whoever needs it to be. Jesus said that many will come to me saying they have prophesied in his name. They will declare that they have done wonderful works in his name. And Jesus will tell them what? To depart from me. I never knew you. Samson said that I will shake myself like I used to. But Samson didn't know that the spirit of God had already left him. It's my prayer that God will move on us to change and to repent. And we're going to have just a short time of prayer. And I want to say right now. And I want you to hear me closely. You have to know God. Church attendance does not substitute for knowing God. Memorizing the scripture does not substitute knowing God. Quoting the Ten Commandments does not substitute knowing God. My son had a, um, a baseball game at 10.15 this morning. Guess what happened? I emailed his coach and I said, Coach, I know how important it is to, to you, but let me tell you how church is important to me. My son won't be there today because I will not by any means sacrifice his salvation because of something that won't last after he's gone. But his salvation, Paula, will last for all eternity. And when his life is gone, he will be resting in heaven with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because salvation to me means everything. Nothing can separate you from God. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? How is your attitude towards worship? Are you living a righteous and holy life? And I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, raise your hand if you're in sin, right? And we're, and we're not going to do that. God knows your heart. You know your heart. And I'm going to, in this moment, allow the conviction, the power of the Holy, of, of the Holy Spirit to do what it is He's called to do. To save us. So right now, in this prayerful moment, and I'm going to pray, we're going to close. If you're in this room today and you either don't know God, that your attitude of worship needs to change, that it goes from a serving me to a serving you, or if you're living an unrighteous life, I, I want to pray for you right now because we cannot allow the glory of God to leave this house.